Hallelujah. Well, if you've been with us the last two Sundays, you know I've started uh, a little series we're doing through the season of Lent up to Easter. And what we're doing is we're looking at, uh, what was that? Oh, youth. Go ahead, youth. You're dismissed. Thanks, Bill. We've been, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, youth. Great, wonderful. You guys are awesome. The youth, the youth church, the kids church is wonderful here. They've just been growing, and it's, 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 it's good to see them all. You know, like I mentioned, we've been going uh, through Jesus' final hours on earth, from the Garden of Gethsemane till his crucifixion at Golgotha, and really to the point he's going to be laid in the tomb. And so we're just really investigating that time. He knew Annas was simply seeking to expedite the process for Caiaphas by finding a charge against Jesus that would stick, and Jesus would have none of the nonsense. He would not oblige uh, Annas. If if they truly had a reason to arrest him, they needed to present the arresting warrant, right? They needed to present the evidence. They needed to produce the witnesses, and none of that had happened yet, right? It was all a sham. So, so Jesus had no problem telling Annas that, listen, I am not leaving, leading a, a movement that is cloaked in secrecy. There is nothing Gnostic about my ministry. There's nothing like the mystery religions around the world of the pagans. There's nothing like the secret societies of our day, right, where you got to go find the secrets in Freemasonry or Mormonism or something like that. No. The teaching of Christianity has always been a public teaching. In fact, this is what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 10, 27. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Doesn't sound like Jesus is trying to hide anything, right? Now, there were times when Jesus told people to keep quiet about some miracles for a short season. Right? Why? Because he didn't want the crowds to enter the villages so he couldn't move. Right? So he would command at people sometimes, don't tell anybody yet because, you know, it's going to be a hindrance to the ministry. Or, you know, he didn't, uh, at times he commands the demons and he even commands his disciples not to tell people about his identity as the Messiah yet. And the reason why is because he needed to renew their mind about what the Messiah was before they began to share that he was the Messiah, because they didn't understand what it meant for him to be the Messiah. But ultimately, that proclamation, too, would be shouted in the light, it would be thundered from the housetops, because the mission of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, is never meant to be secret. It is public for all to hear. So Annas is silenced by Christ's response. He knew he had been defeated, he knew his scheme did not work, and so what happens next? John 18.22, and when he, Jesus, had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, do you answer the high priest like that? So here's Annas, he's defeated, right? And how many know when people don't get their way, they can resort to irrational violence, right? And this strike in the face is the first mention of really violence against Christ. I mean, it is a violent arrest and they bind him, but this is the first time we see Jesus struck. And it's with malice. It's an unjust strike. Jesus is reviled when he is slapped. 
first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, this is what he says. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that we should follow his, foot, his footsteps. Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in him, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Amen? Well, Annas's, you know, tactics don't work. So he says, well, this might take longer than, than we wanted it to. And he sends him to Caiaphas. Point number two we're going to look at is this. Jesus before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. We might call that uh, the Supreme Court of Israel. So this is what John 18, 24 says. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Like I said, if you read all the Gospels, it seems to indicate that he's just sending him to the opposite wing of the palace there. And so here we see the servant who had just struck our Lord across the face now leads him to probably the second story, which Mark indicates Jesus is at because he looks down at Peter in the courtyard, leads him up to the second story of the palace where Caiaphas had been making preparations to conduct his own trial. This is probably the same room in the palace spoken of earlier as a site uh, where the scheming to arrest and kill Jesus had been going on. In fact, this is what Matthew says uh, happened just uh, earlier in Matthew 26, verse 3. says this, Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, who was called Caiaphas, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. All right. So what do we see? How is this trial presented? They had already reached a predetermined verdict long before any sort of trial would take place, right? This is what you call injustice, right? This is what you call a kangaroo court. The big dilemma for Caiaphas was how he could conduct a trial with at least an outward semblance of justice, right? Maybe there's some people on the Sanhedrin who weren't fully convinced of the, the evil of Jesus, and so he's just, for the sake of that, for the sake of you know, the recorders who would be at the proceedings and make the trial more known, he's wanting it to at least appear righteous, right? They're going to put a popular preacher, a popular wonder worker to death. They don't want the people to riot. They want to make sure it's done right, right? So he, he knows that he needs a, a charge. He knows he needs a quick sentence before the daybreak. And he needed Rome to consent to kill him on a cross, why? Because if the Jews saw that Rome killed him on a cross, they would know Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, and they say, I guess this guy was wrong. He couldn't have been our Messiah because there he is hanging on the tree cursed by God. So that's Caiaphas's whole plan. Let's find a way where we can come up, up with a charge, where we, where we send him before Rome, and he's accused as a traitor, he's accused of sedition, he's accused of wanting to supplant the, the position of Caesar, so they will crucify him and show all the Jews that this man is a man who is cursed by God. That's his plan. He doesn't know that Jesus was actually the one who, in his great foreknowledge and in his great desire, actually was consenting to that plan as well. Why? He was made a curse for us, right? That we might become the righteousness of God. So he, 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 he thinks he's getting away with something here, but he doesn't understand in his evil intent how he's actually contributing to the good news. Now before, and he doesn't understand it because he even prophesied, and he doesn't understand that he's prophesying. This is what it says 
a couple days before Palm Sunday. So this would have been seven days earlier. And in John 12, this is right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, we're told this in John 12, verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. You know, um, Caiaphas thought Jesus was a threat to the stability that the Jews had in relation with Rome. He also thought that Jesus was a threat to his own corrupt position as high priest. So, seeking to protect his own self-interests, even though Jesus had done nothing wrong, he sought for a way to kill Jesus, right? Thinking it would preserve the nation, thinking it would preserve himself. But John records, you know, that there's an irony in this statement, right? In fact, a lot of John's gospel is filled with irony. And this is a, a, a fantastic example, because Caiaphas' statement that it's expedient for this guy to die is actually a prophecy, Jesus would die for the whole nation. In fact, John says that Jesus would die for the whole world. Just He wouldn't die in the way that Caiaphas expected. He would die as a sin-bearing substitute in our place. He would die as a lamb that would take away our sins. The evil Caiaphas had planned, you know, was also planned by Jesus for much higher purposes. He was working behind the scenes, working all of this together for our good. You know, many scholars suggest that the actual trial here before Caiaphas is overflowing with illegality, even by the Sanhedrin's own rules. We know this according to the Jewish Mishnah. They had certain rules for how they conducted a trial. And based on that document, we see that it couldn't occur on Fridays, it couldn't occur at night, it couldn't occur on the even of an, uh, a festival. Uh, a, 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 someone on trial could not be convicted based on their own testimony. That, uh, a prisoner could not be bound before they were uh, convicted. And, and what do we see? All five of those things are not being held to here in the trial of Jesus. And, and so it's clearly they're violating their own law. It's an unjust trial. It, it's on at night during the festival of Passover. All these things are wrong. And one thing that is definitely unjust that the gospel highlights is that false testimony was sought. They say that they sought out, uh, uh, you know, uh, false witnesses so they could come and, 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 and uh, accuse Jesus. Why? Because they didn't have any true testimony to accuse Jesus. And it's similar, actually, to a story in the Old Testament. There's a story about a guy named Naboth, and, and he lusts after his neighbor's garden. Right? Ahab lusts after Naboth's garden. And Ahab has a wife named Jezebel. And Jezebel's, you know what, Ahab? I'm going to write a letter in your name, and, you know, I'm going to get two scoundrels, who they call false witnesses, and we're going to make sure that these scoundrels testify falsely against Naboth, and they're going to stone Naboth, and you are going to take Naboth's garden, right? And that's exactly what happens. Well, that's what the religious leaders are doing in Jesus' day. Caiaphas is a Jezebel. And Caiaphas is like, you know, Jesus has that wonderful growing movement, that great garden, and I, um, I want that. 
And so I'm going to get some scoundrels, and they're going to give false testimony about who, who Jesus is, and we're going to kill him, and then I'm going to take what he was trying to take away from me. Caiaphas is a Jezebel here, right? And um, he's got the Jezebel spirit. And, you know, here, 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 so what he does is he lines up all these false witnesses. <laughs> and he's still, to maintain a semblance that this is a just trial, he, he does it according to the law. They come one by one, testify before the Sanhedrin, right? And then see if their testimony corroborates. And if there was two or three that corroborated, then, you know, some sentence could be laid down. But all night long, all these false, uh, you know, scoundrels who are bringing false testimony, none of them agreed. And Caiaphas is probably banging his head like, man, we coach these guys. They can't even remember their lines. So he's getting really mad. And, and it's getting closer to dawn. And finally, they got two guys who got close to agreement. And in fact, Matthew and Mark, they show there's a tension here because it seems like maybe they agreed, but there was enough to show that it was still a disagreement. And this is what the false testimony says in Mark 14, verse 58. One of them says, We heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. Now, here's the thing. That's close to what Jesus said, but that isn't what Jesus said. You know, Jesus had made a lot of statements about the temple. He, he, he prophesied how it would be destroyed. He even said metaphorical statements about it. Like in John 2, verse 19, he said this, destroy this temple, speaking of himself, and in three days I will raise it up. Did he say, I will destroy this temple? No, he said, you destroy this temple. Uh, did, did he say, um, I will build another? No. He said, I will raise it up. But regardless, Caiaphas, who was desperate by this point, seized on the accusation that the two witnesses gave, and, and he says to Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is, what is it that these men testify against you? You know what Jesus does? He remains silent. He doesn't speak a word. He's fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah 53, as a sheep before the shears is silent, so he opened not its mouth. Right? The silence had the effect of magnifying the injustice. What was going on was a complete sham with false witnesses. And at this point, Caiaphas is in desperation. He needs to get a verdict. The sun is about to come up. And, and so, you know, Mark tells us that he moved from his seated position in judgment and he gets up. And, 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 he's in, and, and, and he confronts Jesus in the standing position. And, and um, you know, he, he's about to put Jesus under an oath. And why does he do this? Because he knew he had no more time to waste because Romans only uh, heard cases in the morning time. So they needed to bring the, the, the charge to Pilate quickly if Jesus uh, was going to be judged that day and crucified that day like they wanted him to be. So he's, he's getting impatient, and this is what Matthew 26, 53 says. Caiaphas says to Jesus, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Right? And so, you know, he, he hears about the temple thing, and he's like, well, maybe this most naturally follows from the claim uh, that he's going to destroy the temple, because according to 2 Samuel 7 and Zechariah 6, only the Messiah could make such a claim. And, and if I can get Jesus to claim to be a Messiah, then I can deliver him to... And Jesus was now bound by the oath, bound by the law to speak. 
He also needed to speak in order to bear witness to the truth of his identity, right? And this would be a witness. What Jesus says now is a witness to every person throughout all history. This is what Jesus says about himself. We cannot shy away from this claim that Jesus makes. And how does he first respond to it? He first responds almost with a noncommittal answer. He says this, you have said it. Meaning, um, yeah, you're making that claim about myself, and I am the Messiah, but I'm not a Messiah in the way that you think. Right? In fact, up until this point, Jesus had made very clear to his disciples and even to demons that they were not supposed to talk about his messianic identity. Scholars call that the messianic secret. And the reason Jesus kept it under wraps is because he needed to teach them the true role of the Messiah. In the mind of the disciples, in the mind of the masses, the Messiah was an earthly and political deliverer. And Jesus needed to correct that. And so this is what, what Mark says in, 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 in Mark 8.31. This is right after Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. He says this, He began to teach them that the Son of Man, again, the Son of Man is linked with the Messiah here, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. That was the last thing they thought the Messiah would do, right? To be killed? That sounds like the opposite of a Messiah. So he follows this qualified yes before Caiaphas about whether he's the Messiah with a statement that really gets to the heart of his identity. And this is what he says, Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said to him, to Caiaphas, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's what Jesus said. From now on, you will see or you will perceive that the Son of Man is seated at the right hand of power coming on the clouds of heaven. Now that was a much bigger mic drop moment than just claiming to be the Messiah, right? We know that because the moment Caiaphas hears that, it says that he tears his clothes, he tears his robes, which was in Leviticus, he was commanded to never do that or else a curse would come upon the people. And he tears his cloak and he cries, blasphemy! And all the Sanhedrin, they cry, blasphemy! They knew Jesus was making a claim about his divinity. They knew Jesus was claiming not just to be the Messiah, but to be the divine figure in Daniel chapter 7, who shares in the throne of Yahweh himself. This was the claim that Jesus is making, right? He's saying, I am the Messiah, but not in the way you think. My messianic rule will be from a throne at the right hand of power in heaven. Instead of having a political reign in Jerusalem and overthrowing the Romans like you think I will, I will rule the entire world as the divine Son of Man from from Daniel chapter 7 and Psalm 110. I am the true judge, right? And you, the Supreme Court of Israel, is trying to condemn the judge of the universe. And you will understand, after you have condemned me, you will see it. You will perceive that I am seated at the right hand of power. You know, five centuries before Jesus said this, this is what Daniel wrote from a vision about the Messiah. 
In Daniel 7, verse 13, Daniel writes this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now up to this point in Daniel, you know what Daniel was talking about? A lot of kingdoms that have been destroyed. He talked about Media Persia. He talked about Greece. He talked about Rome. He talked about Babylon. And they were all given power for limited periods of time. But this son of man that was coming with the clouds was different. He would receive an everlasting kingdom. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, his kingdom is talked about as a great mountain that would fill the entire earth. A kingdom that knows no bounds. A kingdom that's for all people. The glory of this king and of this kingdom will cover the earth as the waters clothe the sea. And guess what? That kingdom isn't in the future. That kingdom began 2,000 years ago as Jesus stood before the Sanhedrin there in Jerusalem. So this is the third point I want to make. This is really important because most Christians don't understand this. Okay? Perceiving the Son of Man. Perceiving the Son of Man. Let's read what he said again. Matthew 26, 64. This is the words of Jesus. You have said so, but I tell you from now on. When is that? Is that hard to understand? From this moment, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From that moment, they would perceive him coming on the clouds of heaven. You know, many Christians think Jesus is talking about his second coming at the end of history in this declaration. That he is coming on the clouds to earth. That's how a lot of people read it. But that is not what Daniel's talking about at all. In fact, Daniel is very clear that he comes on the clouds where? Not to earth. He comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. This text is not about Jesus' second coming at the end of history. It is about his enthronement at the right hand of God. It's about him coming on the clouds in his ascension, as Revelation then talks about, to the right hand of God at the Ancient of Days, right? <laughs> it's an enthronement text. Jesus was using the language of the Old Testament to make very clear to the Jewish leaders of his day that though they were going to put him to death, ultimately he would be vindicated and they are, would see that they would perceive that vindication. They would see it. They would know. Wow, this is the Son of Man. And he has gone on the clouds to the Ancient of Days and he's received an everlasting kingdom. You know, this is not the first time in his ministry Jesus used the language from Daniel 7 to refer to himself. He does it three times. And the first time is in Matthew 10, when Jesus sends the twelve to preach to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay? And at the end of his instruction to the twelve, this is what he tells them in Matthew 10, 23. When they persecute you, this is talking about the ministry of the twelve in Israel. They sent out two by two. When they persecute you in the city, flee to another. For assuredly, truly, truly, amen, you can put this in the bank. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone, speaking to the twelve, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Are you talking about the end of history? No. Comes where? Comes to the Ancient of Days. We have to say, where's the Son of Man coming to? In Daniel 7, he's coming to the Ancient of Days. And so guess what? By the time of Jesus' trial, the twelve had gone through most of Israel, but not all of it. 
And once Jesus had risen from the grave and was about to sit at the right hand of power at the ascension, this is what he tells his disciples in Matthew as well, in Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's what Daniel 7 was talking about. Go, therefore, and do what? Make disciples of what? All the nations. He said, I, he first commanded them not to go outside of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Well, guess what? The Son of Man had come at that point to the Ancient of Days. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Before they had been forbidden to go to the nations, now they are commanded to go to the nations. And the only thing that changed was this. The Son of Man had come to the right hand of power. The Son of Man is now the King of the world, and the mission must go everywhere. You know, there's another verse Jesus is talking about to Caiaphas besides Daniel 7. It's, it's Psalm 110. <laughs> and this was the psalm he had used earlier in the week, talking to them, saying, I'm not just David's son, I'm actually David's Lord. And the Messiah is not just David's son, he's a much higher figure. He's David's Lord who sits at the right hand of the power and shares in that power. It's fully God. Psalm 110.1 says this, Yahweh, the Lord, it's all caps, that just means Yahweh. Yahweh said to my Lord, David is speaking. Yahweh said to my Lord, who's that? Jesus. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh said to Jesus, sit at my right hand. A glorified man now sits at the, as the ruler of the cosmos in heaven, Jesus of Nazareth. Do you believe that? He is the son of man that rode the clouds to the ancient of days, and the rulers began to perceive that truth as the church began to rapidly multiply, as miracles were performed in Jesus' name, as Judaism dwindled and ultimately it, uh, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they could perceive that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. But the question is, though they could perceive it, and even when John and Peter are brought before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, it says that they perceived that they had been with Jesus. Though they perceived the work of Jesus in Israel, the work of Jesus in their life, would they believe it? Would they believe it? You know, that's a question for people of every generation. When we see the effect of the reign of Jesus, do we just perceive it or do we believe it? Do we place our trust in it? Do we open our heart to the work of the Holy Spirit? Do we pick up our cross and follow Him? Do we live in such a way where people see and perceive that Jesus truly has ridden on the clouds to the Ancient of Days and is reigning at the right hand of the Majesty? You know, a big part of evangelism is to get people to perceive that truth, right? through how the word is shared, through how our lives demonstrate that truth. It's to get them to understand that Jesus right now is enthroned at the highest place in all of existence. Above all material creation, above all spiritual creation, he shares in the very power of God. All power and authority have been given unto me. Amen. And the cool thing is, Christians, you and me, Ephesians 2.6, he made us sit with him in heavenly places. You spiritually share in the reign of Jesus Christ. You are a prince of his people. You are an ambassador of his kingdom. You need to understand, right, the power, the authority, the life, the righteousness that you possess in him. And you need to live 
right, secure, that you got a loving Savior, right? And that you're new creation in Him. But what happens after Jesus says, you'll see the Son of Man, you'll perceive it from here on out, coming on the clouds. They knew He's talking to the Ancient of Days. They knew He's not talking about end time. Well, this is what happens, point number four, blindfolded and beaten. They get really mad. Blasphemy! Look, Matthew 26, 65. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. Right? When, when Caiaphas tore that robe, it signified that the old covenant was coming to an end, right? Whatever spiritual authority Caiaphas may or may not had uh, was being passed fully to Jesus that night. You know, in, in Psalm 110, we see that it's not just about Jesus' enthronement at the right hand of power as David's Lord, but it goes on to say in Psalm 110, verse 4, that, that he is a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, meaning he has an eternal priesthood. That thing Caiaphas and Annas were afraid of, that their power would be done away with, yeah, that was true, <laughs> because Jesus took their place, right? And so Caiaphas tears his robes against the law of God. He puts the nation under curse, yet Jesus would bear that curse for him. So after those quasi-official night hearings in the high priestly palace, do those present allow witnesses to come forward to validate Jesus' claim? Right? That's what you should do in a just trial, right? Okay, he's claimed to be the Son of Man. He's claimed to be the Messiah. Let's bring forth the witnesses. Do they allow all those that were healed and raised from the dead to come and testify? Do they allow Peter, James, and John to testify about how he was transfigured before them, shining like the sun on the mountain? No, they're not interested, right? This is what Caiaphas says, Mark 14, 64. You have heard the blasphemy, what do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Now, we'll later see, we've seen in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, that even though the Jews did not have authority to kill people, only Rome could do it, they still on occasion would kill people, right, secretly. They, they stoned Stephen to death. But they're like, you know what, we don't want to engage in that sort of action. We really, like I mentioned, we really need people to see that this guy is not who he said he was. He's condemned by God himself, so we're going to hand him over to the Romans so he can be hung on a tree and shown to the world that he is cursed by God. So that's what their whole strategy is from this point. And, uh, and so immediately as they, uh, you know, uh, shout blasphemy that he's deserving of death, all of the members there who say he's deserving of death, because they're not going to stone him like the law would demand, blasphemy demanded stoning, but they engage in a symbolic stoning. So what do they do? Each and every one of the Sanhedrin members, they show that Though they technically can't stone him, they want to stone him. And instead of throwing stones, they're going to start throwing fists right at his face. This is what Matthew 26, 67 says. Then they spat in his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands. Mark, tells, Mark and Luke tells us that they blindfolded Jesus, and then they took turns striking him and beating him, both in the face and in the body. That's what Luke term for beating means. It's in the body, the other... Gospels talk about him striking the face. As his hands are bound behind his back, they're, they're just striking him, right? 
He's struggling to breathe with, with the blindfold over his face. And they're mocking him. And Luke twenty two sixty four says this, And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is he who struck you? Now this is extremely great irony, for Jesus had prophesied about that exact moment. Multiple times. He even prophesied that they would spit in his face. Mark 10, 34 says this, Jesus speaking long before this time, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So he's not just fulfilling his own prophecy, right? He's fulfilling the prophecy spoken by Isaiah in Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So he isn't just beaten and mocked and spit upon, but Isaiah says that portions of his beard were plucked out. I don't know if you're a man, no, you know, maybe women, well, you pluck your beard sometime, women, no, I'm just kidding. But how many know that that could be a painful experience, especially if your beard is grabbing and yanked out? They're inflicting all the pain they could possibly put on Jesus, right? And this is what one doctor, Dr. McGovern, speaking of the crucifixion of Jesus, he writes this. By the time he reached Pilate early on Good Friday morning, he was exhausted and thirsty and had developed many tender areas of bruising and swelling on his face and body. His subsequent punishments would be magnified because the skin and soft tissues were inflamed and full of chemicals that mediate pain to the nervous system. So they're getting him primed for much greater punishment before Pilate. You know, if, if, if the Shroud of Turn is the genuine burial cloth of Jesus, it even shows that portions of his beard are plucked out. So it appears that this symbolic stoning, this beating of the face and body, it mostly takes place after the second trial in the dark of night. And then Jesus is held in custody before the final official sentencing in the morning, according to Luke, and uh, where he's finally delivered early in the morning to Pontius Pilate. And the last point I want to make this morning is this. Peter denies and curses Jesus. You know, while Jesus is undergoing a trial by the Sanhedrin in the upper floor of the high priest's palace, his head disciple, Peter, is in the courtyard below. In all the Gospels, they justify these two trials. All of them talk about Peter. In Matthew and Mark, Peter's denials are recorded after Jesus' night trial. In Luke, it's recorded before he records the morning trial. In John, it's recorded the first denial happens before Annas, and the second denial happens as he's before Caiaphas. So they all harmonize well. But Peter, he's the one disciple. There's two disciples who go to, to the high uh, priest's palace, and they follow from a distance, and he sneaks in through the gate. And then the, the, the servant, the little girl servant, she's a teenage little girl who let Peter in the gate. She sees him by the fire because, you know, well, he's just, uh, he's, he's not being very careful, right? And she catches him. But before we get there and, and see what she says to him, this is what Peter said earlier that night in Luke twenty two thirty three. He said, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. In Mark 14, 29, he said this, Even if all, meaning all the other disciples, are made to stumble, yet I will not be. So here we see Peter that night. He's really puffed up in self-confidence, right? He felt he's a cut above the rest of the disciples, that nothing could make him stumble. 
He seems to be for, forgetting the proverb he was brought up on as a child. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Not only was he proud, but that pride allowed him to remain prayerless in the garden and now careless in the courtyard, warming himself with the arresting party. And so the young little girl comes to him and this big burly fisherman, he gets afraid of the little girl. This is what it says in Mark 14, 68. Uh, you know, she says, um, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? And then he says, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And then he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. Um, other translations just say a cock crowed. We'll get to that in a moment. So while distancing himself from the crowd by going to the gate, Mark mentions that the cock crowed the first time. And a little later, the same girl came back with some other servants of the arresting party. And together they pressed him. So she brings some other people and, and they press him. And, and, and this is, uh, they say, you know, come on, we know, we know you're a disciple of Jesus. Uh, uh, we know you're, you, you're Galilean. And Matthew 26, 72 says this, but he again denied with an oath, I do not know the man. So remember, this guy had said that Jesus was the son of the living God. But now he pretends that Jesus is simply a man that he knows nothing about. In fact, by taking an oath, he would have invoked God to witness his reiterated denial, saying something like this, God is my witness that I don't know this man. Then after about an hour passed, one of the relatives of Malchus came up to him. Malchus, remember? He's the guy that Peter tried to lop his head off. It says this in John 18, 26, one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, did I not see you in the garden with him? So fear seizes him at this moment, right? Right? He's probably planning his escape. He's caught up in his emotions. If, if they find out he tried to kill Malchus, maybe they're really going to, you know, lynch him or something like that. And so he resorts now to not just taking an oath and denying Jesus, but he begins cursing and swearing. Matthew 26, 74. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know the man. Now, this is what, I want to read what um, one uh, New Testament scholar, R.T. France, says about this. He says this. He says, first comes an evasive denial, then a direct denial on oath, and finally a much stronger response, which is probably to be understood as actually uttering a curse against Jesus. If the verb here meant, as some versions have suggested, that Peter's putting himself under a curse, if he is lying, it would require himself as an object, as it is in Acts 21. Here, where the object is not expressed, it means that Peter is cursing someone other than himself, and the most natural sense in this context would be that he now began to curse Jesus as a way of dissociating himself from him. This was precisely what uh, Pliny later required those accused of being Christians to do in order to prove their innocence, to curse Jesus. So that's what Peter, it starts off as a denial to the little girl. It, it then turns into an oath to the living God. I do not know the man. And then he begins to call down curses on Jesus. Wow. And Mark says as he's calling down curses that the cock crows a second time. That was a fulfillment of Jesus' own prophecy. Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now, uh, some translations have rooster there, but it's probably just cock. And the reason is, is because roosters weren't allowed in Jerusalem. They were unclean. 
Mishnah says there weren't any roosters in Jerusalem. And the cock was a term for the temple crier who declared the beginning of priestly activities in the temple. So they would blow uh, a horn, they would blow a trumpet, and it would you know, signify that the activities in the temple courts were beginning to pl take place that day. Well, the high priestly palace was only a couple stone throws from the temple. Peter heard the cock crow, boop. He heard it again, and the second time he heard it, he realized what he had done, right? And he begins to weep bitterly. He begins to weep with poignant grief, violently, as some translations put it. We can imagine Peter's eyes gushing like a fountain, and he runs out of the courtyard. He runs into the dark night, and he remembers the words of Jesus. But before, before he, he runs out of that place, as he's hearing the cock crow, something else happens, and Luke records it. In Luke 22, verse 61, it says this, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And that's when the tear ducts really began to open and really began to flow. And Peter understood that everything that Jesus said would happen, happened that night. You know, there's a lot of great things that have been written about this look of Jesus. John Toller wrote, How quickly did he look upon him with the eyes of grace and permitted the rays of divine light to shine into the dark depths of his soul? Philaret of Chernigov wrote, Jesus' gaze of love called Peter out of the bewitching darkness of sin, and his repentance was solely the result of the life-giving gaze of heavenly goodness. Groanings wrote, The look of gaze of grace caused a quick and instantaneous contrition, sincere and serious. Martin Luther said, This consolation, like a mighty deluge, suffocated, yea, it quenched the fire that threatened to consume Peter's heart. And so Peter sees this look of hope and he's probably reminded in that moment that, not, that Jesus had not just said that he would deny him, but he was reminded that, that, that he had said, but I have prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. You know, the first thing Jesus says when he raises from the dead, he sends an angel to speak to the women. And this is what the angel commissioned by Jesus speaks to the women in Mark 16, 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he, Jesus, is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Peter was singled out in this commission given to the women. Tell especially Peter that I'm risen from the dead, right? And guess what? The angel doesn't call him Simon, like Jesus had called him earlier that night. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like we. No, he calls him Peter. He is that rock. He is my loved one. He is my restored one. Even though he denied me with an oath of the living God, even though he called out curses on me, he is Peter. And on this rock, the one who cursed me and denied me, I will build my church. That's the grace of God. And he meets him in Galilee. And what, is, what does uh, Peter do? Uh, Jesus comes to him, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. You know how many times that happens? Three times. For the threefold denial, there is a threefold restoration. Peter, his life is so transformed in this moment that he is committed to follow Jesus till he dies. And, and Jesus says, at the end of your life, you're going to stretch out your hands. And we know in Rome, in the 60s, Peter, they wanted to crucify him. He said, okay, but don't cru crucify me right side up. Crucify me upside down. 
because I don't want to take any glory away from the crucifixion of my master who took away my sins even though I called down curses on him and denied him in front of everybody. You know, that's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though Caiaphas thought he was removing himself of a political rival, Jesus said, no, you don't understand. I'm the judge of all. I'm the king of kings. I'm the Lord of lords. You might think it's expedient for me to die for the nation. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm not just dying for the nation. I'm dying for the world. I'm dying for your heinous, wicked sins, Caiaphas. I'm dying for your heinous, wicked sins, Annas. I'm dying for your heinous, wicked sins, Mission City Church. I'm dying for the sins of the whole world. And, and, and when you perceive it, and you receive my life, and you receive the abundance of grace, and you receive the gift of righteousness, from that moment you pass from death into life. You pass from the power of Satan to the power of God. You pass into my hand where I'm holding you tightly. You pass into my life seated at the right hand of the majesty with me. And you can begin to enjoy an abundant life. Amen. That's Jesus. Do you perceive him at the right hand of God, the glorified Son of Man? Jesus Christ? Maybe you're here and you don't believe in Jesus. Maybe you're listening and watching online and you don't believe in Jesus. Well, it's simple. Philippian jailer said, what must I do to, to, to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You know, if you've heard this and the Lord has been tugging at your heart and stirring your heart, you know, it says that we believe with the heart, right? And, and so if, as your heart is believing in him, just place your faith on Jesus and just repeat after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I thank you for rising again on the third day. I perceive that you are the Son of Man, seated at the right hand of the power. I thank you for giving me life. I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to come and reside in me and to make me a child of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. We praise the Lord. God is good, and I tell you what, we get to worship Him. Amen. So I want to invite Leroy to come uh, forward. And, you know, as we're worshiping the Lord, if anybody needs prayer for anything, I want to invite you to come forward. We'd love to pray with you uh, because God is at work. Amen. So just open your heart, open your hands, open, open uh, your life to the work of the Spirit as we worship. Amen.